This episode contains discussions on substance misuse and themes of a sexual nature. Listener discretion is advised. Think back to your youthful days. This may be harder for some and easier for others. Think of all the parties you attended and the fun and the sun you had with your friends. It's pretty hard to think of that right now during Corona, but it happened. You probably remember alcohol being present and you may or may not have noticed other substances being shared around. That is what we're talking about today, party drugs. Welcome back to that Alcohol and Drug podcast. My name is Reese, your host and creator of the podcast. On this episode, you'll be hearing from a treatment and a family workers from Better Lives who will give you some background information on party drugs, what they are, how they work, and the kind of effects it has on families. You'll also hear from Joe, who has used Better Lives for his own recovery. He'll talk about his journey and where he is now. But first, we should look back over a brief history of party drugs. Drugs have had a long and significant place within human history. In the modern world, drugs are predominantly used for recreational and medical purposes. However, drugs often have their roots in cultural and spiritual origins. Party drugs are no different. Let's briefly go over some of the more common ones. We need to go back around 3000 BC when party drugs first had their recorded origins. The ancient people of the Incas would use coca leaves as a way to combat the negative effects of living in thin mountain air. Their Peruvian neighbours often chewed coca leaves during religious ceremonies as its stimulant properties was believed to make them closer to their gods. It would take until 1922 for the US to ban the coca leaf before the drug commonly known as cocaine, which is derived from the natural coca leaf, started to become popular in party scenes in the 70s. Magic mushrooms run a similar course to the coca leaf, with its believed origins growing in Spain 6,000 years ago. Magic mushrooms, too, were used for religious ceremonies before being popularised by Western cultures in the 20th century for their psychedelic properties. Magic mushrooms are commonly associated with the hippie culture of the 60s and 70s and has many connections to modern psychedelic music. MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy or E, was first developed in 1912. Having a similar effect to the brain as magic mushrooms, MDMA was used in experimental psychotherapy in the 70s, before becoming widely popular as a party drug in the 80s. MDMA is commonly associated with dance parties, raves and electronic music due to its stimulant effects. It creates an extended state of euphoria that is often heightened by strobe lighting, fast-paced music and shared experience with others. GHB, ketamine, and nitrous oxide, often called NOS or laughing gas, falls under a similar history. They found their home in underground party scenes in the early 80s and 90s for their depressant effect. Party drugs are now commonplace within electronic music scenes and are heavily associated with youth culture around the world. With stimulants and depressants being used for different occasions, recreational party drug use is widely accepted in the UK, even though some of these party drugs are legal. Party drugs have moved away from their cultural and religious roots within Western cultures. However, they are still used for very similar reasons. To enhance the experience of the user, to become closer to one's environment, and to feel a greater connection to the people around you, whether it's human or spiritual. The 
There you go, a bit of history on party drugs. Now we're going to turn to an interview with Martin. Martin is the clinical lead for the Better Lives Services for Islington. He has a wealth of knowledge around party drugs, and today he's going to tell us about stimulants and depressants, how dependencies can be formed on party drugs, and what someone can do to treat their problem party drug use. Would you be able to describe what party drugs are? I guess party drugs is quite an umbrella term. What are the most common types of party drugs that we see through better lives? Well, first of all, party drugs can be, um, as we know, there's been ever-increasing usage of party drugs. This can be a range of drugs which change names all the time. Some of these, for example, include uh, various uh, methadrone constituents, which may be called plant food. Um, ecstasy or variants of ecstasy, MDMA, can also be included as a party drug. Um, GBL, GHB, most known as GBL. Crystal meth as well, or methamphetamine, is also a well-known party drug. And we also come across ketamine from time to time as well. And those are stimulants and depressants, aren't they? Right. So we do, yes, there's different categories. So for example, uh, methamphetamine um, or crystal meth, which is also known as, or in some quarters, Tina or Yabba. Um, it's a stimulant and a stimulant stimulates the central nervous system. So if we think it tends to speed things up um, mentally, you may feel more alert, mm. um, hyperactive, um, but it also physically uh, increases your pulse rate and mm. also your blood pressure. Depressants, on the other hand, well, they have the opposite effect. Mm. So they tend to slow things down, where your body functions slow down, your blood pressure drops, your pulse drops, where you can feel more relaxed. Ketamine, that said, has also got anesthesia mm. um, properties as well, which is more disassociative, where you feel almost out-of-body type experiences. Going on the theme of party drugs, and you kind of touched on the mental effect that stimulants and depressants have. What kind of effects could party drugs have on a physical withdrawal and, and kind of the mentally? So how does it affect the brain? Different drugs that I mentioned will have different effects. So if we start, for example, with GBL. GBL is a depressant drug, um, and it can be very habit-forming, to put it simply. Uh, most commonly used in clubs, um, Obviously, there's not much club use going on at the moment, of course. It can give a sense of euphoria sometimes when people use it in clubs um, and quite often are mixing it with other drugs, quite often stimulants. One of the real risks with GBL, first of all, is you have to take it, if it becomes habit-forming, you end up having to take one to two mils potentially every one to two hours. Mm. Um, there's a very narrow range between overdose and a therapeutic dose. Um, when you become physically dependent. Mm. So physical dependence can occur quite easily with GBL after a period of use. Mm. The problem with that is the only way to alleviate it while you're still using is to keep using and keep using safely. 
Mm. Um, so one of the first advice we would give to anybody coming to treatment is uh, when we assess their use in detail and look at withdrawals, um, is educate them um, at the very early onset around safe usage mm. uh, to minimise withdrawals and work um, as part of that towards a plan towards detoxification. Um, when we come to stimulants, the stimulant drugs like crystal meth tend to be less physically dependent and also ketamine. There's no solid evidence base for these to be actually primarily physical dependence. They're much, much more psychological dependent. Mm. Um, with stimulants, as we said, the body speeds up. What tends to happen with stimulants like certainly crystal meth, it has quite a long-lasting effect. You can be using it for a period of time. Mm. The effects can last over 24 hours. There's an old saying from when I was young in the field, um, what goes up must come down. Mm. And boy, it does come down. Is it possible for someone to form a dependency on party drugs, on these stimulants and depressants? Absolutely. Um, as we said, there's both physical or psychological dependency. Mm. So certainly from my experience um, working in substance misuse, um, we've seen a lot of dependency uh, physical dependency on G. Mm. Um, GBL, uh, uncontrolled dependency um, and withdrawal itself can be life-threatening. Mm. Um, I have to uh, kind of underlie um, how serious uh, an unmonitored GBL withdrawal can be. Mm. We've had examples of some service users in the past suddenly stopping or the supply of GBL has stopped um, and they're slipping into withdrawals. Without some form of immediate support through emergency services, there is a risk of those withdrawals could run unbridled. You could have seizures, mm. um, fits, go unconscious, mm. um, and there's all sorts of complications associated with that. Mm. Um, there's also the risk, obviously, with um, in terms of withdrawal from stimulants, of uh, aggression, paranoia, hyperexcitability, mm. um, also with low mood. Um, you can become very depressed, uh, dependent on one's circumstances. This mm. can lead on to depression, increases suicidality. It all very much depends on the individual circumstances as well and how yeah. the drugs are being taken. There, are, We come across lots and lots of triggers and circumstances yeah. uh, that may be trauma-based, may be stress or work-related based. Um, lots and lots of reasons. So we, in all cases, we would assess, uh, risk assess, fully um, yeah. the wider picture. And, and talking about risk assessments, I suppose, what kind of things can people do to manage their problem party drug use? So if you've got a problem with party drugs, I mean, first of all, making sure you use with somebody else around you. Mm. Be aware of how much you're using. Yeah. Mixing of all drugs is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Certainly depressants, as I said, should never be mixed together. Alcohol and G are very dangerous along with other mm. depressants. Well, what I would strongly expect to do, uh, expect anyone obviously is to be welcome to contact us. Um, we do get referrals from a variety of agencies. The vast majority of our party drugs tend to be from the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. We tend to try and engage people through those community services like Antidote mm -hmm. or sexual health clinics where quite often people using these type of drugs tend to, but not exclusively anymore, mm. tend to first presentations or accident emergency. Um, we would assess people, talk to people about their 
drug use yeah. um, in detail, what their worries, what their concerns are in a sympathetic, empathic manner. Yeah. Give people time to talk about, because a lot of people are quite frightened. Mm. And I would say... I. I, I admire anybody's bravery coming to a service. Yeah. We can meet people anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the service if they don't feel comfortable. We can meet them if they're working with another service. We can meet them there. Yeah. We could meet them at home if necessary. Um, if it's a sexual health clinic, a HIV clinic, for example, yeah. or a general medical facility, a GP surgery, wherever you feel most comfortable, yeah. come and have a chat with us. We're now going to hear from Joe, who will provide their personal experience with party drugs. Joe has gone through their own recovery journey with Better Lives and is now a peer mentor with the service. Joe provides advice to people who have gone through similar things to him and is also active in the groups that the peer mentoring program runs. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. And um, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? So what your background is and what you currently do? And maybe your involvement with Better Lives as well. I think that would be good to kind of talk about. Sure thing. Uh, well, I was born in London. Um, I'm 38. Um, I grew up abroad, actually. Well, I spent the first 10 years of my life living in London. Mm. Uh, my family moved to France. So when I was, yes, when I was 10, going on 11. Um, and I've sort of had a bit of a nomadic career. I worked, uh, after graduating from film school, I worked in Paris for a bit, then moved to London. Worked in um, advertising distribution, very boring, very sort of technical, mm. um, very sort of uh, office-based, logistical and all that kind of mm. stuff. It was, I just didn't want to be a runner for too long. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I would have been about 24 when I moved back to the UK. Uh, and then after working in advertising for 10 plus years, I wound up in the charity sector. Um, yeah. And I'm now a copywriter and editor for a fundraising website. So, it, yeah, it's just about writing. Mm. I became involved with um, Better Lives about two years ago um, after a series of difficult personal experiences uh, mm. job loss, breakup, and then my uh, mother passing away, I developed mm. a bit of a strong uh, addiction to alcohol, actually, mm. um, having previously had problems with drugs, I sort of gravitated towards alcohol. Yeah. And after getting ill and ending up with um, liver damage, I mm. was referred to Better Lives to try and help me cut that down. I've done several periods of sobriety and managed drinking, I would say. And I have been drug-free pretty much for three years. Excellent. Yeah, it's been a long journey. It's been difficult. The alcohol more than the drugs, it must be said. But um, yeah. drugs, you know, are still part, you know, lived in London. Well, I still live in London, although not currently. I'm um, mm. currently up in Suffolk, uh, staying with my dad. But yeah, no, and so I've been staying involved with Better Lives through Zoom. Um, I trained as yeah. a volunteer peer mentor uh, at the beginning of last year, just before the first lockdown, um, which yeah. has been great. And now I run a group as a volunteer peer mentor based around recovery from um, substance abuse. Yeah, great. So that must keep you busy and, and it must be nice giving your expertise and, and lived experience back to people that similar situations to what you were a few years ago. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's really, really gratifying. Um, it's, you can, it's a way 
I think it, there's a certain amount of empathy that you can have as a service user that maybe you wouldn't have um, despite the amazing work that the, the various staff at Better Lives do, the, when, you've, mm. when, the, when you've been a user yourself, you kind of can get a little bit more understanding. And I think a lot of users suffer from self-recrimination, mental health issues, mm. and just trying to encourage a bit of sort of self-care and self-love is, yeah. is, is essential because I wouldn't have been able to sustain how I've managed to stay more or less, you know, it's not always been a, it's been a bumpy ride, um, but on mm. the straight and narrow, just through the fact that I've had people around me who reminded me that I have value and worth and, 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 and having been around people who know what it's like. Yeah, and I think we'll um, we'll go into more depth about maybe that peer mentoring and maybe what Better Lives treatment is maybe a bit later in the interview. Mm. I think it'd be good to talk about your relationship with substances. So, I suppose we can go from the start, maybe when you first started experimenting with drugs and alcohol as well, and you know how, how that relationship developed and when you first noticed that it was becoming a problem for you. Yeah, I mean, well, alcohol, I mean, where I grew up, alcohol was quite present from a young age. I think I had my first Did, did you grow up was, in London? Uh, well, I was in London until I was 10, and then I moved to yeah. the country, rural part of France, um, basically France's answer to the West Country, um, Brittany. Yeah. So I was, I think I was about 12 when I had my first drink, but didn't start drinking mm. properly. But I mean... Was it like a culturally accepted thing to drink at that age? Or is that quite early? I mean, 12 is early. Um, I think yeah. that was just at a party and a cousin just gave me a beer as a taste. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't, yeah. It wasn't anything. But I think by the time I was 16, 15, 16, I was, you know, going to parties and drinking quite a lot. Um, mm. And yeah, it was a cultural thing. You know, the only the only drugs around in those days, because I'm going back to the uh, sort of mid-90s, the only drugs around in those days was weed. Not never really been much of a fan of that. Yeah, it was mostly drink, and there was a sort of mm. there was a sort of culture, particularly amongst boys, to to drink more as a way of being macho, which is rather pathetic. Mm. Um, but you know that was just you know t- typical teenage things. You know, I wasn't drinking on any sort of regular basis. It was just you go to a party and you bring a bottle of vodka and a crate of beer, and and you know it's typical teenage stuff. Um, yeah. And then I didn't drink much or, or do any drugs throughout my college years until I moved to Paris when I was about 21, 22. Yeah. And there were, there was, that was when I first discovered cocaine. Yeah. Uh, and to a lesser degree, ecstasy. But even then, you know, at the time I was in a stable relationship, long term relationship. Also, um, mm. oh, I didn't have any money because, you know, we, we, me and my then girlfriend moved to London uh, to Paris, and we, you know, just did odd jobs, and we, you know, didn't have much money. Mm. So, you know, it was never really that present. So, I guess it really started when I moved to London. Yeah, because I was working in Soho. I came out. I, mm. I identify as bisexual, pansexual. I don't really know. I started going to a lot of gay clubs and bars, mm. and then in the in the media world in those days, and I guess still, I mean, I'm out of the well in, of the media environment now. But you know, in those mm. days, it was a lot of um, it was a lot of drugs and, and booze. And you'd go, to, you mm. know, after work on a, you'd finish work at six or seven on a on any day of the week except perhaps Monday, um, mm. and then you just go to the pub. And then, especially uh, in that area around Soho, it's very accessible, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you'd go, yes, yeah, so you'd go to the pub and. Then someone would say, "Shall we get a 
shall we call the dealer? And then the next thing you know, you've bought three grams. I was yeah. making a lot more money by then. Um, not at yeah. first, but, um, and I was just partying a lot. I was experiencing mm. London. So, you know, weeknights would be pubs with my work colleagues and then weekends would be all the gay bars and clubs in central London. Mm. And there, there'd be more drugs. Again, mostly Coke, but also mm. um, MDMA. And then ketamine arrived and then MCAT, as they called it, methadrone. Mm. And then I started hanging out with musicians because I was a music journalist and hanging out with other music journalists. And once again, mm. you go into clubs in, you know, Elephant and Castle and Brixton and Hackney Wick and all these sort of, and Dalston. And you, again, mm. it's just there. And so I would say that by the time I was 26, I had a couple of regular dealers. Mm. Um, and at one phase, I was doing about 300 to 400 pounds a week on mm. on coke up until i got into another relationship and then that carried on for a while nonetheless and then mm. after a while i realized that i was not being a very good partner to my my then boyfriend and uh mm. and knocked it on the head um yeah the coke um the rest of it took a bit longer because i didn't have mm. such, such a problem with it but i guess yeah that's how that was my gateway into it was through various you know music and club scenes around london so you kind of identified there that it was, it was a socially acceptable thing and it was part of the kind of circles that you were running in party drugs. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, at work, you know, you'd hear stories of people who were doing it in the office. Um, mm. And it certainly was constant of an evening. Um, if you went out, that was just what you did. Um, mm. And I was, yeah, and I, was, I became addicted to it. Very, I, I'd always wanted to do it. As a young person, I guess, in love with certain types of music and you yeah. know, mythologies behind. Um, certain... Kind of glamorizes it, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, you watch a film and it doesn't matter that the film ends up with a character, you know, reduced to being a complete mess because of drugs. You still, mm. the bit that hooks you is the beginning bit, you know, and when they're discovering parties in Hollywood or New York or whatever, and you sort of mm. think, well, that looks really cool. And, and, you know, I mean, drugs were also, for me intrinsically tied up with sex and mm. you know it was a, it, it's a disinhibitor um mm. and so you do a lot of certain drugs and you you could you know you were less likely to feel inhibited and more likely to experiment and do crazy things mm. and and hook up with strangers and it just became it just became it got to the point where i wouldn't go to a club without drugs um mm. and i don't really go clubbing now because that association is still there with me and i I don't trust myself. Would you say it was quite normalised in the club scene as well, that everyone kind of taking drugs, it yeah. was kind of the expectation almost? You go to a club and that's that's what you're expected to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was... It's only for my, in, my, in my case. I mean, I did, have, I did know a lot of people who didn't do that, mm. um, although I'm struggling to remember now. But certainly, I, you know, I, I, I went on a trip to Berlin, um, mm. met some some people there I'd never met before and we went to a club and the next minute they're just there someone mm. says here take some of this here take some of that um I was mixing different drugs yeah it would just seem to be that there was always there was always a way to get some even if mm. I didn't have any and usually I was a, so, someone who could be relied upon to have some and um so you kind of described around 26 is when you 26 27 is when you decided that enough is enough and you wanted to stop using it when, when did you see that it started becoming a, a problem? When, when did you kind of recognize, okay, 
this is something that I need to stop doing now. What, 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 what kind of things were happening to you? I mean, I was 30 by the time I, I think I was 31 when I quit. Um, okay. The coach. Okay. So, um, yeah, it was a long drawn out process. Um, yeah. Part of it was that my then partner didn't really dabble. Yeah. Um, and found me a bit insufferable um, mm. at times. Not always, but I could be a bit insufferable. It'd be things like, you know, meeting friends or family for an afternoon drink in the local pub. Mm. And I would have two grams with me for no real reason. You know, it was mm. just what I did. You know, it, it it became obvious that I was not as much fun to be around for him. And yeah, and it just, you know, I wasn't sleeping. My nose was bunged up all the time and mm. or, or runny or you know it seemed to be one or the other and then it was a remind I was then remind even though I wasn't going out as much by then because you know when you're in a long-term relationship you don't tend to go out clubbing quite so much um mm. we were together for nearly six years it kind of just stopped it, it became something that I was doing at home yeah. or at other people or at parties or you know but not like mm rave parties but more like dinner parties so it just became really normalized yeah it just became part of the routine you know you go out and socialize and you had to have substances and yeah it just became it felt like it just a very normal thing yeah and then with that it just became tedious it became this mm. sort of boring habit that i just sort of had and i was a boring person when i was on it and then you know prior to that i'd had a few times where i'd taken unnecessary risks mm. whilst on drugs and ended up in some sticky situations, luckily I've managed to escape from them unscathed, mm. uh, more or less. Sort of as I got older, the memories of those events became less funny and more mm. troubling. And I thought, yeah. if my life goes south for any particular reason, if I have some sort of crisis and I have drugs on hand rather than to not have drugs on hand, I'm likely to put myself in danger. Mm. If if you're happy telling telling the listeners what kind of danger you would put yourself, what kind of risks that you would take? Um, wandering the streets completely off my head, sh- interacting with shady characters, mm. having my phone stolen, my wallet stolen um, more than once, uh, being robbed, mugged, mm. uh, mugged by a drug dealer in Amsterdam, unsafe sexual interactions, um, mm. you know, forgetting about contraception and things like that um mm. because you're too out of it to really care um mm. and the hedonism takes over um yeah so just stuff like falling over injuring myself um mm. particularly the combination of drugs and alcohol meant that i was tended to get into more accidents than mm. than i should yeah just stuff like that it was just mm. um sort of waking up in someone's flat and not knowing how i got there um, mm. and what had happened. Um, yeah. and that was, that was quite scary. Um, mm. I think it was waking up, realizing I'd had unprotected sexual intercourse and lost my phone and wallet and in a stranger's flat. And I suddenly thought, mm. but it took the, the penny didn't drop at the time. I mean, it did to an extent in that, you know, I, I did start, you know, once I was in a relationship, I curtailed a lot of that behavior. Mm. Um, well, I curtailed all of it, to be honest, I did because I just stopped going out. But then mm. it became good grief. What have I put my, what kind of situations did I put myself back in? And you'd be recount, mm. you know, I'd, I'd recount the stories to groups of people, a lot of whom didn't do drugs. Um, because yeah. as I got older, groups of friends that I mixed with, didn't do drugs 
um, or fewer and fewer. And, you know, there's a sort of wide-eyed, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. And you're thinking, ha, 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 that's quite funny. And then mm. on reflection, thinking, actually, no, that's quite dark and bleak mm. and dangerous. I don't want to be putting it out that that's something you should be doing. You know, these things will ruin your life. And then, yeah, then it was the fact that I was, you know, in, in deeply in love with someone who didn't like the person I was when I was mm. on drugs. And... In that respect, it was an easy sacrifice to make. Yeah. And I, that was one New Year's Eve, um, three years, three or four years ago. Um, mm. The next day, I just looked at my then partner and said, that's it, I'm done. I'm not doing any more mm. of that. Yeah. And that was that. We will return to the interview with Joe later, where he will tell us more about his experience with party drugs. We are now going to hear from Anita, who is the service manager of the family service. She's going to provide us insight about the effects party drugs can have on family members and also the effects they can have on children. Hi, Anita. Welcome back to the podcast. You're here for the alcohol episode um, and now we're doing party drugs. Yes, hi, Reese. Thanks for having me back on a very wintry, snowy day today. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really nice, actually. You know, coming from Australia, we don't see it that much, so it's quite nice to have the snow falling down. Absolutely. And it's nice for us to be in somewhere nice and warm and feeling toasty. Yes, that's very true. All right, so we we'll might as well crack in then. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be able to describe what effects someone's party drug use could have on their mental health? Yes, Reese. of course. Um, All drugs, as you know, have some kind of effect on your mental health. They affect the way you see things, your mood and your behaviour. These effects may be unpleasant or pleasant, be short-lived or longer-lasting, or be similar to those you've experienced as part of a mental health problem. Mm. Mental health problems might go away once the drug has worn off, or it may continue once the drug has worn off. Mm. For some people, taking drugs can lead to long-term mental health problems such as depression or schizophrenia. Mm. It really is difficult to predict how you will react to a drug. You may react differently to the same drug at different times or in different situations. Mm. So the mental health side, um, is it more when people have dependencies? Is is that when we kind of see these kind of things? Well, this may differ depending on a number of factors, Reese. Mm. It could be the type of drug, whether the drug has been mixed with other substances mm. and what these other substances are, Yeah, the amount you take, the environment or social situation in which you take it, how often you take it, your previous experience of it, what you want and expect to happen, and what is your mental health at the time? Because it's really important if you have a history of poor mental health, you may be more likely to experience negative effects with illegal drugs. Mm. And if you've previously had no mental health problems, you may still develop symptoms of a mental health problem from using these drugs. So, yeah, that's really interesting, um, the effects party drugs can have on mental health. Maybe we should discuss how someone's party drug use might affect their family members. So, obviously, 
the drugs themselves don't affect them directly, but the all the stuff around the drug use definitely has an effect on them, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely, Reese. And I mean, discovering that a loved one uses drugs or has an alcohol problem can be shocking, scary and stressful. Mm. You know, you may have found out suddenly or the realisation may have crept up on you over some time. Either way, it can be a really anxious time for family members. Mm. And because many family members might not know about drugs or alcohol dependency, and some members, some family members might have a little bit of limited knowledge mm. around that, many hesitate to seek out this information, mm. uh, not wanting to associate themselves with issues that can be stigmatised, mm. misunderstood and scary. Mm. And, you know, Reese, we've all seen media representations of those who struggle with these issues, which often can be prejudiced and judgmental. Yeah. However, learning a little bit more about the issues can reduce your stress and give you a better understanding of what your loved one is experiencing mm. and what you can do to help yourself and them. Mm, definitely. So going back to that theme, we were talking about how family members get affected. Yeah. Would you be able to describe how party drug use might have an effect on parenting or how it affects maybe a child's development? If you're using drugs a lot or become dependent on them, this can have a negative impact on your day-to-day -day life. And that relates to children because as a parent, you're parenting your children, mm. you're living together day-to-day. -to -day, and if you are using drugs, there is going to be an impact on your money, mm. your education and employment. That's if you're in school or mm. you're in employment. But also, Reese, to talk about the children, because as parents, we have to get our children to school. Mm. There's routines, there's mm. structure. And that's very important to maintain that and to be consistent with that. Mm. And so we need to role model that to our children. So that can also, children's education can be impacted by their parents' drug and alcohol use. Mm. We also see the impact in housing. What do you mean by that? Is it like unstable housing or moving yeah, from house to house? Be, well, it can be it can be a combination of factors, Reese. I suppose the very simple one that can put housing in jeopardy is that if you're using lots of drugs, if we go back to the top of the list, which is money, mm. if you're going to stop paying your bills, and yeah. that includes your rent, yeah. then you are putting yourself and your children, if you've got children, in a vulnerable position mm. because you're not paying your rent, you're not mm. keeping up with the bills. So housing can become very vulnerable mm. and again low self-esteem so as a parent if you're feeling low self-esteem mm. and you're not being supported with that or your you know your drug use is impacting negatively on your self-esteem mm. this in itself can be really difficult um to try and lift yourself up from but equally, it can be very difficult for children who physically look at your face for reactions. Mm. And so if mummy and daddy are very absorbed in their drug use, they might miss those social cues to model back to their children about yeah. Yeah. their emotion and well-being. So it really does affect the emotional well-being of the whole family mm. if your self-esteem has been impacted by your drug use. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, that there is a lot that can be negatively impacted by drug use. Mm. And that's why we would always encourage anybody that's struggling with a drug or alcohol issue to please get support. But likewise, it's equally important to support the family members and children of those 
individuals that use mm. substances and alcohol. Yeah, I suppose. So going on that, what are what are some things or some tips that you could recommend um, for loved ones who uh, have a loved one using party drugs um, and, and how they can help themselves as well? Because like you said, it's really important to help a loved one, but also it's really important to help yourself as well. If somebody has severe problems, the reality might be that there is a limit to the actual amount of support that you can give mm. and how much you can get them to change. Mm. However, that being said, there are always things that we can do that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And the first thing is to encourage that individual to seek help and support. Yeah. Now, this can be difficult, particularly if they're seeking help for the first time. Mm. But as we've also touched on, Reese, about stigma, you know, stigma, people being worried about being judged for their drug use mm. or concerned because the drugs they use are illegal. And what it's really good for, for family members to know is to reassure that person that it's okay to seek help, mm. that it's okay to get support mm. and to help them decide where to go for support. And for support services, you know, you can find us in the Better Lives website. Yeah. You can go to Islington, your local borough. Yeah. And go to the council website. You can ask Frank. Yeah. There's loads of fantastic organisations uh, that can put you in touch. Adfam is another national charity that supports families. Yeah. So you can help them to find out what services are available locally. Then if you'd like, you can go with them. If they would like you to, mm. especially for a first visit, yeah, you can support them to make the most of the services they're using. If the support offered is not helpful or they're reluctant to attend, you may be asked to attend the meetings with their support workers and doctors yeah. to help both of you. You just heard from Anita, who is the service manager here at the Family Service. We will now return to the interview with Joe, who will talk about family, friends and his involvement with Better Lives. And I suppose, would you be able to talk about the effects it might have had on your partner or family members around you or your friends? Like the kind of things that they would tell you or that, you know, maybe in reflection what you noticed that, that you were doing that affected them? Um, well, I'm very, very grateful to my ex because I think he was the only person who was really honest with me. Mm. Um, I think in a lot of families like mine, family members don't know what the signs are. Mm. And they just think, they think you're drunk. Um, yeah. Or they think you're hyper. Or that you've weirdly lost your appetite. Mm. So, and I think some families also don't know how to approach the subject yeah. so I don't know how aware anyone apart from my brother was of it having a de and my and my partner uh, having mm. a detrimental effect on me I don't think anyone else really noticed mm. I think possibly my best friend who was my ex-girlfriend and she was around when I started she probably did but then you know she, you know she moved abroad and and you know she had her own life to live I think she may have noticed yeah. certain things when when we were both when we just split up and we were just going out as friends and I was getting heavily into it she'd be like you yeah you know and I think once I was I mean this is really dark but I, I'd spilled some and decided that I was just going to snort it off the carpet and she just mm. went you're an idiot but I don't think apart from her it, it took until my my boyfriend to say you you you've got a problem yeah 
And then I had to get through the denial phase and go and say, you know, I like this. Um, This is what I like to do and I don't Mm. have a problem. Um, It's just a bit of fun. Yeah. So then just realizing that if I didn't stop it, it couldn't just be a party thing for me. Mm. It was if it, it, I had to just delete all the numbers and yeah, block the text messages from the dealers and just be like, you know, I need to cut this out of my life now. Yeah. But no, I think, I mean, I think that there were times where I had blazing rows, you know, during, you know, we have, you know, you have a dinner party with my parents and then, you know, I'd be on that. And then, you know, we'd end up on some political discussion, you know, you know, how mm. debates in families happen. And then I would just get more and more heated and more and more aggravated because... Mm. So it's harder to kind of control your emotion, yeah. emotional regulation. Yeah. But whether or not my family kind of put two and two together and went, oh, right, he's high. Mm. I don't know. Um, mm. I think that I think also families can have a lot of denial about these things. I think a lot of families yeah. can just look at someone who's clearly using and just go, "Oh, he's probably not," because yeah. the truth is too embarrassing. Yeah, and a bit. And often, often families just don't have that knowledge. Mm. Like you know, they just don't know about the substances. They don't know the things to look for and um and and the stigma that is around it as well like they don't to acknowledge it there's so such massive social shame around using substances and for them to acknowledge that is is a hard thing for them to do as well yeah absolutely and i think that there can be some you know my parents grew up aware of these things because you know they were children of the 60s and 70s so they knew that this kind of stuff existed they had friends who did it yeah but those friends never developed it, you know, it never developed into a problem. You know, it was something mm. that happened and they dabbled in when they were younger and then they grew up and they got, you know, 2.4 kids and so on and so forth. And it just yeah. kind of stopped. It's easy to just go, well, that's what Joe will do. Joe will stop, you know, um, mm. or Joe's just being a bit, you know, he's just being a bit wild. Yeah. And they don't necessarily see the dark, you know, family members don't see the dark mornings of the soul when you're coming down and you and you realize you've done something ridiculously stupid and 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 you've got fallen over and sprained your ankle or something and it's because Mm. you've been I think the worst thing I did apart from when the times I put my own health at risk was one day I just didn't show up for work because I'd been Mm. out all night and just slept through my alarm clock and woke up to a very very angry management team um and I was in deep trouble um and given an unofficial warning so and that was you know, because I just was doing, I was just partying too hard. Yeah. Would you say that your substance use was a form of escapism? Yeah, very much. It got, well, it got to a point of escapism? Yeah, very much. It became, um, it became an obsession with pushing myself a little bit to, I wanted every, <clears throat> I kind of became interested in extreme behaviors and mm. pushing myself to the limit. And just, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've long struggled with, mental health problems and mm. I don't you know I haven't met someone with substance abuse problems who doesn't have mental health problems mm. I think it was just another way of numbing that pain and going a bit crazy and yeah escaping mm. escaping from from reality escaping from a job that was you know perfectly fine but wasn't quite what I'd hoped my life would be mm. and everything kind of just when there was a lot of uncertainty in my life it used to be something I would turn to would you say it was like a coping mechanism for stress or or the uncertainty yeah I, I think above all it was a way of coping with social anxiety mm. um, so going out I loved going out but I didn't necessarily feel comfortable in crowds or in groups of people particularly people I didn't know and then after that it just became a it became a reflex mm. and I think one one new year I spent 
nearly a thousand pounds on getting enough drugs for everyone at the party mm. um, and then getting deeply paranoid and angry when they did them all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, which was, yeah, the more the evening went on, the worse my behavior got mm. and I got more and more unhappy. Yeah. And then I couldn't sleep. So going back to when you were 30 and 31, when you realized that it was affecting your, your relationship with your ex-partner and you're just kind of, you know, affecting you going to work as well. And then you decided, actually, you know what, this, this is, is a problem and I'm going to do something about it. Would you be able to describe that kind of part of your journey, the start of the treatment? So what I would say to anyone who thinks they have a problem with it is, in my experience, it was quite easy. That doesn't mean yeah. it will be for everyone. Yeah. But hopefully it's quite easy. You just stop it. Mm. It helped that I was in a happy place mm. um, because I was in a good relationship at that. You know, at that point, it was a good relationship. We were it was mm-hmm. going very well, and we were living together. The perhaps the best sign that I am over cocaine is that when that relationship failed, mm. I didn't go back to the drugs. Um, yeah, I was very tempted because I was yeah. unhappy. I had other things to to keep me. You know, I, I I had the inner strength to not go down that path again. Having fewer people who do drugs in my life, just, you know, again, that, that wasn't a conscious decision. It's just how things have panned out. Probably was was helpful in that respect. Yeah. But, I mean, I also, you know, had strict instructions to a lot of my friends who do do drugs to say, don't offer me any. Just don't. Yeah. So kind of having those boundaries, setting those boundaries, social boundaries, and maybe not on purpose, but removing yourself from the social environments that promoted the or just had the substance use around it was was helpful yeah absolutely and i think it 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 was a sign that in that period i had a friend group that was particularly keen to look out for me on that in that respect yeah it just happened i'd moved to where i live now it's a new neighborhood i'd moved with my with my partner and then you know he and i split up yeah. Um, and I'd made, I, I knew a lot of the people in the area anyway, because they're long term friends and family. But I also made a lot of new, very dear friends around the same time. Mm. I had told those new friends, some of whom, you know, did dabble. I don't, you know, just, I don't trust myself. Mm. To, so if you are doing drugs, that's your lookout, that's your life. Mm-hmm. But just please don't offer me any. And these people had my self, my best interests at heart, and so didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you know what you know that you know knew the local um, gangster, shall we say, and just said mm-hmm. to him, "Don't you dare offer any to Joe." So you had nice supporting friends that were yeah. you know interested in your well-being and interested in having a good time. Yeah, and that's and that's essential. They, and uh, you know they, they, I think, for anyone who is trying to stop using a substance, particularly drugs. I think having caring people around you mm. who know is essential because they provide you with that 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 foundation to keep yeah. to keep on the straight on the right path. So we've kind of talked about how it's good to have good strong friends around you, and would you be able to talk about some of the things that you did maybe to work on your alcohol use? They kind of go hand in hand a little bit, the drug and alcohol use. Absolutely. Maybe someone that's thinking about maybe accessing better lives or thinking about doing something about their substance use or their alcohol use. What kind of things did you do and um, how was the interactions with Better Lives? Uh, Yeah, I mean, Better Lives pretty much probably saved my bacon. What it was is, like I mentioned earlier, I got sick. I was very, very ill. Mm. Pains, 
stomach. Well, I thought it was stomach. Obviously, it was my liver um, mm. vomiting, so on and so forth. It was pretty grim. Yeah. And um, I took the step, which I would advise anyone to do who thinks they have an issue, is I went to my GP. Uh, I said, mm. I'm feeling ill. And uh, GPs are trained and, and know to pick up on these things, I guess. Yeah. And so what happened was that the the GP immediately saw that there was some sort of problem with that was probably down to the alcohol because one of the questions they asked is how much do you drink and uh, um, mm. the numbers were alarming um, because I was going through yeah probably over 100 units a week mm. but it was good that you were honest and you were able yeah. to be honest with your GP I think that's really important yeah I completely agree and that's that is one of the hardest steps because I I know that in the pre in the past because I you know I had been aware at the back of my mind that this was something that was going on that I had a problem mm. But I was refusing to face up to it. And then when you go to the GP, you'd round down a bit. You'd say you had mm. three points a night rather than seven. And, you know, yeah. so that's actually rounding down a lot. I was also, you know, post-breakup, I was in a very bad way. And I realized that yeah. the alcohol was having a very severe emotional uh, impact on me. Mm. Through Better Lives, I was able to access group meetings, um, a program called Skills for Sobriety, which was um, cognitive behavioral therapy based. I have medication to help with cravings. Yeah, and constant supervision and support from um, not just Martin, but um, a whole team of people. Um, mm. In particular, the team that has helped me get my peer mentor accreditation. Yes, and you know, it had been a while since I'd achieved anything that significant, and mm. uh, being able to help others is beyond brilliant. Um, mm. And I'm very, very proud of what I've achieved in that respect and uh, yeah. and I'm still learning. It's a field I'd like to be more involved with, maybe even yeah. professionally. So, you know, it, but it, it's, it's gone hand in hand with real be rebuilding my life in different ways. Um, yeah. Po with, post um, a number of rather traumatic events in my life. Yeah. All I can do is to recommend that people do go to their GPs if they think they have uh, an issue get themselves yeah. referred to better lives because better lives just there's so much support within better lives for people with substance abuse problems there's something there they, there will be something that will help yeah and and not only not only people with substance use issues but also their family members um, absolutely and they can go also to go to their gp and ask them mm -hmm. questions and and come to us and talk about it as well That Alcohol and Drug Podcast is made possible by Camden and Islington NHS Foundation Trust in partnership with Humankind and WDP. So this is the end of the episode. Today you heard from a treatment worker, family worker, and you also heard from Joe who shared his story with us. If any of the things today brought up something for you, it might be best to talk to someone about it. If it's substances itself, you can go to your GP or you can come to Better Lives. If you were to Google Better Lives Islington and Camden, it would come up. If you're a family member, then you can come to the family service. If you search Better Lives Family Service, it should come up as well. If you're a professional listening to this episode and you liked what you heard, share it with your colleagues and share it with your friends. For now, from the team at Better Lives, we wish you well and I hope you listen to us again.